How are you out there? Amen. Well, all those high harmonies with Kelly singing high with her has kind of stripped my throat out a little bit. So I'm waiting for a cup of tea here. It's coming from China, apparently. But uh, it's going to be here. So don't be distracted by that. Get your Bibles out. We're in Hebrews tonight. And uh, we're in the last chapter, and we're going to finish it up tonight. So no more Hebrews after tonight. But there's other parts of the Bible, everybody. Amen. I know we've been here a long time. Father, we just thank you tonight for this study. We thank you for every detail, verse by verse, that we have went through. We've enjoyed uh, the thrust of this book, showing the supremacy of the new covenant over the old covenant, showing the the supremacy of Christ over everyone else. And he's the one that we can put all our trust in tonight, that Jesus is superior to the old covenant, to the law, to Moses, and all of these things. Father, we thank you for the hall of fame of faith that we learned about. And Father, I pray that each day we would remember to live according to those principles, to to live according to what got those people in the hall of fame, Lord God, that it was there. It was their faith, not so much their exploits or their religious activity or their moral superiority, but just the fact that they approached you with faith and it pleased you, and it pleased you so much that you used them as an example for us. Father, as we wrap up the book tonight, Lord God, just seal in our hearts all the things we learned here. I ask it in Jesus' name, and the church said, amen. So what I'm going to do is read you verses 1 through 16. The end of the chapter is a prayer and uh kind of a benediction and a farewell, so I'm going to leave that out, and we'll just, we'll just catch up with that later, but the first 16 verses of chapter 13 in Hebrews has a lot of meat in it, so here we go. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated since you yourselves are are in the body also. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Verse 7. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow. Consider the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have profited those who, who have, who, which have not profited those who have before. So we're going to get into that a little bit, but kind of a circle, verse 9 there. Verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the body of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate, seen occupied with them. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. But be not, 
But do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Observe those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So there it is, 17 verses, uh, 17, 16. We, we went through 17. Powerful stuff in there, amen? Uh, worth chewing on. So let's, let's look at uh, Hebrews 13. It's packed full of moral and spiritual direction. That's what you just heard in there. Moral direction and spiritual direction. And it's there for every believer. The intent of giving these directions to us is to strengthen and protect our faith, amen? Understand, your faith needs to be protected. If it's snowing outside, what do you do? You put your clothes on that will protect your skin, amen? And you know, where my wife is from in Saskatchewan, it gets down to minus 70 and if you don't have clothing on your skin, if you're outside for just a short period of time, you will get frostbitten so bad your skin will turn black. So not instantly, but, you know. What I'm trying to say is that, you know, we protect our bodies. You know, we ride bicycles. Now you got kids that wear helmets. We didn't wear helmets. You could tell my generation didn't wear helmets. But, you know, we protect our bodies with the right gear. Now, sometimes we need to understand that our faith needs to be protected and even so much more, amen? So these instructions, these uh, things that are being poured out here, kind of rapid fire, uh, are for our strengthening of our faith so that we can learn to protect ourselves. Never forget that every day our faith is under fire. Everybody getting that? Come on, when you go outside the door from the minute you come out of the sanctuary of your home, your faith is under fire. It's under fire by what's on the radio, by what's on the billboard, by who's at your job. And all of us have to protect our faith. So I hope you're getting that. Now listen to kind of the rapid fire uh, direction that is given here. Verses one through six give us moral direction. Verse one says, let brotherly love continue. Now that word love there is the word, uh, there are several words, three primary words in Greek for love. This one is phileo. Phileo means that paternal, brotherly, friendship style of love, amen? How many have people that, you know, you have this brotherly love with, this friendship kind of love with? It's a precious thing, isn't it? Anybody have friends? It's a nice thing. Two people, praise God, three. But I mean, that phileo love is a great thing. Yes, agape is amazing and it's unconditional. It's God's kind of love. Eros is the love that's expressed in the sexual union. But phileo is that brotherly love, the paternal love. And that's the word used here. Let brotherly love continue. You know, so it means that we should have friendship and fellowship and brotherly love. Why? Because that's the glue that keeps the church together. Amen phileo love that you know when you see your brothers and sisters in christ there should be an excitement there amen you know if you've gotten to the place where ah who wants to see them or who wants to go to church there's a lot of people in that condition right now and why because the phileo has evaporated and they don't have a connection that's why it's so important when you come to church that you don't just come you know worship hear the message and run out that door there's a lot of a lot of the ministry that takes place at church happens when we fellowship with each other that's where the phileo happens. So understand, it's saying here, let that brotherly love continue. Don't lose it. It's the super glue of the church. It's what holds everything together. In fact, love, like this type of love, has the ability to smooth over most of the problems in the church. 
Have you ever been at a church where there's problems, there's cliques, and there's people, well, this group doesn't like this group, and this group, well, that person doesn't talk to that person, and this family doesn't like that family. Hello? Am I telling the truth? Well, what's the problem there? No phileo, and, 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 and there's no brotherly love to broker peace, but love solves most of the problems that are in the church. Proverbs 10, 11 through 12 says this, the mouth of the righteous man is a well of life, but violence covers the mouth of the wicked. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers a multitude of sins. So there it is. Love covers what? A multitude of sin. It, it, so when we rub against each other or we annoy each other or we offend each other, hello, welcome to church. All of that stuff is going to happen. Oh, they offended me. I'm never coming back. Don't walk away from Jesus somebody didn't take their medication that day come on some people do and the people who aren't laughing you're the ones who forgot you know we we come half you know unhinged sometimes and we're having a bad day and we take it out on somebody else or we're you know somebody slights you or the pastor didn't shake your hand he probably didn't see you he doesn't see too good anymore but you know that phileo that brotherly love that friendship that bond that that heals a lot of offenses and that covers a lot of sins and it's what smooths out issues in the church. Verse two is a call to hospitality, but with a twist. Do not forget to entertain strangers for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. So, you know, we're talking about entertaining strangers. Also, you know, in that call to entertaining and, and being hospitable, is this idea of hospitality. Now, some people describe hospitality as a spiritual gift. You can certainly think of it that way. Uh, do not forget to entertain strangers. Do not forget to entertain your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do not forget to be hospitable. Isn't it amazing how our culture has changed in just a few decades to where people were hospitable and they, you could drop by somebody's house and you could just ring the doorbell. Now you, you have to call and make an appointment six weeks in advance and get your schedules and people in neighborhoods out in the country live behind gates i live on a dirt road there's a couple houses who are that are gated what are you trying to keep out the bears the raccoons what no what does that gate say that gate says stay away people are not hospitable and you know what that has crept into the church too just in the you know the time of when i was young till now it's it's a totally different ball game with fellowship and being hospitable. Christians are called to be hospitable, uh, especially to all people, but no, especially to those of like precious faith. Amen. We should be hospitable to everybody. Amen. I'm taking, writing down the people who aren't clapping. Let me just stop by your house and look in your refrigerator. But we, you know, somebody needs help, somebody got a flat tire, someone, you know, needs a, a gas can, whatever. However we can help people, be hospitable, amen. It's amazing how I see people stuck, ladies with flat tires, people just whizzing by, the chivalry is dead, nobody cares anymore. But Christians have to be hospitable with each other. And it's, it's so important that we connect. Why? Because that's where the really strong bonds of phileo are created, when we fellowship, when we break bread together, amen? Got to stop hiding behind those gates. Well, you know, I have to clean my whole house. No, let, let them see it the way it is. Stop being a liar. That's the way you live, amen? Invite them over. Let them look in the closet. Praise God. 
We're all worried about, oh, the house has gotten the food and this. this. Sometimes, you know, sometimes just get a pizza, sit down with somebody. Come on, Wednesday night. We have so many excuses, but the bonds of phileo are produced in fellowship, and we have to be hospitable. Now, being hospitable is not just a personality trait or a cultural thing. You know, we try and explain it off like that. But it's an expression of spiritual maturity. If you look for the characteristics that God looks for in leadership, one of the things is that they are they're open to hospitality. Amen? So it's a mark of spiritual maturity if you're hospitable. If you've got a million excuses, you don't want to hang out with anybody, you want to cloister yourself, that's a mark of something else, and it's not maturity. So the twist here in verse 2 is a little caveat where it says, you know, basically be hospitable because you might unwittingly entertain angels. Now, that's an interesting twist, isn't it there? When you're helping somebody, when you're handing food to a homeless person, when you're helping somebody broke down on the side of the road, you you never know who you're helping. In the Old Testament, there was times where they entertained angels, and, you know, they didn't even know it, but, you, you know, there was a blessing attached to it because they were kind or hospitable. Uh, you know, that happened in the Old Testament. The writer of Hebrews wants to know it can happen in the New Testament. So be kind to everyone. Be hospitable to everyone. Verse 3 adds two more points to our moral direction. Remember the prisoners in chains as if you are in chains with them. So here's a call to minister to those who are in prison. Now, most churches have, excuse me, some kind of prison outreach. We have men that go into the prison systems, a couple uh, who do that, and they, they love that ministry, and it's a powerful one. But here, Hebrews is telling us to remember those who are incarcerated. Now, certainly what it's talking about here is our brothers and sisters who are locked up for their faith. So that's the main point here. Certainly we should pray for and minister to anyone who's jailed for their faith. Now, in our country, this doesn't happen much, but you know, in other countries, it does. And we've partnered before with that ministry called the Voice of the Martyrs. Hey, you remember that? And we sent money to them. Why? Because our brothers and sisters in the Mideast and China and parts of Africa, and, you know, it's, it's growing, but they're jailed for their faith in Jesus Christ. And there is something we could do. We can pray for them. We can, you know, we can finance those ministries that reach out to them. And we have, you know, as a pastor, I've seen such a great uh, blessing come back to our body when we minister and we partner with ministries like that. I literally see growth financially and spiritually and numerically. You say, why? Because that's the heartbeat of God, amen? You know, in the West, we're, we're told to be just so self-absorbed in everything about us and our comfort and our pleasure and how comfortable is the seat and is the air conditioned cold enough? But there are people right now suffering in prisons all throughout, you know, the, these countries that I mentioned. Do you know North Korea is one of the most vicious persecutors of Christianity. North Korea tortures and kills every Christian it can find. In fact, they're number one. You would think, oh, the Middle East, they're cutting heads off. They're doing all kinds of crazy things. North Korea, according to some of these ministries, is the number one persecutor. Our prayers for our brothers and sisters count. And God is waiting to hear them from our lips. So certainly we should pray and minister to all those who are jailed for their faith, but, you know, we should also remember to pray for those who were in jail because they did something really bad. You know, they they murdered someone, they raped someone. Well, you know, why do we have to minister to them? Because God loves them still. 
and they can be saved, amen? You know, God doesn't give up on people just because they, they, they made a mistake, just because they did something really bad. And you know what? The truth is all of us are capable of that. Every person in there thinks, well, I'd never, I never thought I'd be in here for, for doing that. We've got to minister to those two in our prison outreaches, do that, and we should be mindful of it because the writer of Hebrews wants us to be mindful of it. So we move on to verse 4, and we're getting more spiritual direction here. Uh, it addresses a huge pitfall for almost every living person, and that's the issue of sexual immorality. Listen to what it says here. Marriage is honorable among all, and the marriage bed, or the bed, it says in some verses, undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So let's look at verse 4 there. Verse 4 is talking about that pitfall, sexual immorality. God's remedy for avoiding sexual immorality is marriage. Everybody wants to shack up and play house, and everybody wants to, you know, have sex before they're married. Listen, if you want to have sex, get married. That's the remedy for expressing yourself in a sexual re relationship. <laughs> you know, every other topic, amen, amen. This one here. Not even audible, amen. God's remedy is what? That we should be married. Why? Because all of us have sexual needs. God programmed us that way, but he has given us an outlet for the expression of those needs. 1 Corinthians 7 says, let every man have his own wife, for it's better to marry than to burn. So if you look at that text that I just talked about, 1 Corinthians 7, read the whole chapter, you'll see, you know, Paul is telling the Corinthians who were very immoral, the Corinthians were out of control. I mean, and, and Paul had to rebuke them and chastise them constantly about their immorality. Uh, but, you know, he's saying marriage is a solution here. You know, don't burn with lust. And if you don't have self-control and you don't have the gift of singleness, then get married. So what? So you can express yourself in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. Someone say amen. The institution of marriage is constantly under attack. It's demeaned, it's devalued, it's billed as archaic or religious. It's something that some people want to avoid, yet they still continue to have sexual relations outside of marriage. And here the text is telling us, you know, avoid that because the judgment of God is pending. Less and less of our generation trust marriage to be the thing that brings them peace and safety. But that's what God designed it to be, amen? This verse reminds us that marriage is honorable. Let every man have his own wife. Better to marry than to burn. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Let's keep going. I'm going to keep digging into this here. The marriage bed, it says here, that the marriage bed is undefiled. What does that mean? That means it, marriage is the only outlet of sexual expression that God blesses and that God allows us to have. So, you know, our generation that says, I don't want nothing to do with marriage, well, does that mean you're going to be celibate for the rest of your life? And their answer is, heck no. Well, judgment is looming over your life. And it's amazing that, you know, even in the church we see this, that young people, you know, 
young people scoff at the idea of waiting for marriage. And we, we, we tell our young people, well, you can't get married till you know, you're about 49 years old and you got all your education complete and you got all your degrees. Oh, and then you have to have a job and then you have to be making good money and then you can get engaged for five years and then pretend you're going to get married. Man, I've seen things change in such a short time. And you know what? If we don't like it, we need to change it in the church too. So the latter half of verse 4 says fornicators and adulterers will face God's judgment. What's fornication? Fornication is unbiblical sexual acts between unmarried people. What's adultery? Unbiblical sexual contact with someone outside of your marriage. So fornication and adultery, there's a lot included in those. There are all kinds of unbiblical sexual expression. Uh, judgment is promised for those who willingly violate God's order. He's the creator. He created us. He created sex. He gets to define its usage. Not society, not the culture, not some philosophical professor in, in a college who says, you know, we're having a revolution. You can do whatever feels good. You realize what they're teaching our children in grade school now? I can't even say it from the pulpit. This is a big pitfall. It's a big problem. And the church needs to spearhead, uh, you know, the turnaround in this area by raising a generation of young people that honors God rather than falls into the muck and the mire of this world. Verse 5 and 6 speak to us about being moral in our conduct when it comes to material possessions and financial excess. Do you, do you see how they're hitting topics here in Hebrews that are so relevant to us? I mean, what could be more relevant than the sexual immorality that plagues our nation? Well, how about the materialism that plagues it? You know, in verse 5 and 6 here, let your conduct be without covetousness. What does that mean? Want what other people have. Be content with such things that you have. You know what? People want everything that everybody else has because they have it. You know, when we were children, we were like that. Well, they have these sneakers or they have these pants. People never grow up. Yet it's amazing. We have a whole culture of people who want what other people have, but they don't want to work for it. My grandfather's generation, I remember that World War II generation, man, they worked for everything. They saved, they scrimped, they didn't use credit cards. Hello? Everybody wants everything now. And you have that? Well, I should have that. You drive that? I should. No, it doesn't work that way. If you want something, you got to work for it. Boy, have we lost that. Yet here, the scripture is telling us to be content with what we have. You know, don't covet. We, we're a covetous generation here. You know, and it's, and it's, you know, fostered by, you know, politics and class warfare and the haves and the have-nots and tax the rich and do this and do and, and you know the bottom line is god will not be mocked the bible says if you don't work you don't eat you know <laughs> you don't get a six-figure job you don't get a bmw i don't know what to tell you drive a toyota so our conduct when it comes to wealth and possessions. Way too many Christians have been duped into believing that amassing wealth and having possessions equals spiritual growth and favor. And that's just not true. Too many Christians have been tricked, if you didn't understand, duped. 
into thinking that, you know what, if I got a bunch of stuff, that means God is blessing me and I got favor. You know what I found that a lot of people have a lot of stuff that God never gave them. That they took themselves, misused finances, stole from others. You'd be so surprised. I know people who've built businesses and then stole from the people, the contractors who did the electric work and the heating work and all that stuff to open up their business, stole them, only to watch that business go out of business in under three years. I've seen these things. Why? Because God will not be mocked. Whatever we sow, we reap, amen? We've got to work for these things. And the blessings of God, when he brings them to us, we should be content with him. We shouldn't be lusting over other people's stuff. Covetousness, it's a violation of the commandment, amen? So Hebrews is telling us here, you know, we need to be content with what we have. Contentment is such a wonderful thing. It's the answer to killing lust for material things is to be content that we would, you know, it says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. God has given all of us everything we need to have right now. Some of us don't believe that. No, 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 no. When I get this, then I'll be happy. No, 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 no. When I, when I get to this position, when I make this much money, when I get this many weeks off, when my wallet is so fat, you know, I can feel it when I'm sitting on it. No, that's not going to bring contentment. In fact, if that's your motivation, you're chasing, you're chasing the wind, and you're never going to get there. So let's learn contentment. Don't be greedy. Don't always, you know, I've known people that were just greedy and takers and always had to have the biggest slice of everything. Have you ever been around somebody like that? They had to have the lion's share. They, if you, if, you know, they couldn't tolerate it if you had more than them. I've known people like that. I've known people like that in the ministry. We don't have to be driven to be greedy, to have the biggest slice, to always be lusting for more, to never be satisfied, to be jealous of others who have what we don't. The spiritual death sentence, it's really immature. Maturity is being content. Paul said, I learned to be content with little and with much, to, to be hungry and to be full, amen? And that was the secret that Paul had found. Why? Because Paul had been in palaces. He'd been at, at tables eating rich food. He'd been in dungeons, beaten, flogged, and chained up in the dark. And what did he say? Well, I've learned to be content. What a great lesson. God teach it to us. Our text tells us, you know, to be content, and it's something that we can think about, but until we embrace that in our daily routine and learn to be satisfied with what we have, uh, we're going to struggle. And and the latter half of verse 5 and 6 show us exactly how to find contentment. Listen to this. Don't miss this tonight. For he himself said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Think about that for a second. Why Why can I be satisfied with what I have. It's because the Lord is with me. He himself said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. Listen to verse six. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You know, we don't need to fear the future. We don't need to fear lack. We don't need to fear, you know, what's going on in in the nations. Why? Because the Lord is our helper. He's with us. He's for us. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. He's our ready supply. He's Jehovah Jireh, the many-breasted one. He has what we need. 
in abundance. He's not up in heaven going, oh, oh no, we're running low on stock. What's happening? He's got it. He's got the cattle on a thousand hills. God won't leave us. He won't forsake us. We're connected to the supply. That's what I want you to get. We don't have to be greedy. We don't have to, you know, when they were greedy when the manna came down and they kept too much, it rotted and it stunk. Wouldn't it be great if every time we, we had sin in the camp, it would stink? You stink like sin. Be easier. No person, no group, no government can separate us from our supply, and that's in God. Verse 7 through 17 give us some spiritual directions here. So these, these come a little bit more rapid fire. They're less about morality. They're just... Uh, you know, kind of miscellaneous spiritual direction here. Verse 7, remember two things about those who serve as your spiritual leaders. Now, it says, remember those who rule over you. Now, that word rule doesn't mean, you know, reign like a tyrant. That word rule means like serve. It means to be leadership. So it says, remember those who are in leadership over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow Consider the outcome of their conduct. So two things to, to realize about the spiritual leadership that God puts us under. One, we should follow their faith. So everywhere you see faith in a person, nobody's perfect, amen? But we can learn something from anybody who's, who's expressing faith. So when it comes to gleaning from leadership, you know what? Follow their faith, and that's what... You know, the, the Hall of Fame of Faith that we looked at, it didn't tell all the flaws and the shortcomings or the personality quirks of the people there. It just told about their faith. So, you know, remember to look for the faith that is modeled to you and to apply it to your life. And then remember how things turned out for them. It, look, it says, look, uh, the outcome of their conduct. That's pretty interesting there. Remember those who lead you, uh, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, so find some faith and follow it, consider the outcome of their conduct. Now, that's an interesting thing right there because like I, I always say, and I want you to get this, you can learn from a bad example and you can learn from a good example. You know, and all of us have, have been under leaders, under bosses, may, maybe under spiritual leaders that, you know, they provided a really good example. We learned work ethic, we learned spiritual, you know, dynamics, whatever. And so there's a good example, that's good. But we can also learn from the bad example of what not to do. And that's so important. You know, I think God allows us to be in places and under certain people at times just for us to learn, you know, what not to do. Have you ever been at a job and had a boss and you thought, how in the world did they get this? How in the I mean, I've served under people with no integrity, with no character. I served, you know, when I worked in the warehouse at Pepsi as a fork tuck driver, my wife and I took two years uh, off before we got into ministry. For two years I worked there. The boss that I worked under was stealing from the company and, you know, he had no integrity and he didn't get fired until I left. And I said, Lord, what, what? And he's like, don't worry. Basically, I, I had to learn from him what not to do. And I liked the guy, too. And I was even sad that, you know, he was embarrassed. They walked him out of the place. But, you know, he was a cocky, arrogant, ungodly guy. And I learned a lot from him of what not to do. So when it comes to leadership, you know, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Learn what to do, learn what not to do. Follow the examples of faith there. 
Um, verse 8 provides a spiritual benchmark for us all, uh, regardless if we serve under great leadership or poor leadership. Uh, this is the bottom line here, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The final analysis is we're serving God. If you're at a job working for a boss to please a boss to make a paycheck, you're missing it. Come on, Wednesday night. Oh, well, I just got to get in good with the boss, and I got to get a raise, and I got to get this, and I got to get more education. Listen, everything we do is unto the Lord. You don't think I'm preaching to make you happy, do you? Oh, Pastor Rick's trying real hard. Let's, you know, I'm preaching to make him happy. Because in the final analysis, you're not going to re reward me. This is not like a game show, you know. Uh, what does Pastor Rick get in eternity? Well, what does his congregation say? No. I got to please the Lord. You got to please the Lord. We got to do it unto him. And he's the, he's the one that we're shooting for. So, you know, regardless of what leadership we've served under when it comes to, you know, learning and growing, we trust the Lord and that he's our portion. That's the benchmark for us. Uh, Nobody's perfect, but you can learn something from everybody, but keep your eyes on Jesus, amen? Verse 9 says, Do not be carried about with various strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace. Not with food. So he's talking about the legalism of dietary laws there and, and strange doctrines. Let's take a look at this. This is a warning not to get sucked back into legalism. Strange doctrines and legalistic things and things that people came up with that sound spiritual but are not biblical. You know, grace has to be the foundation of our lives. And that's the thing we understand. It says, that for it is, it is good that the heart be established by grace. It's all about grace. It's not about legalism. Not with foods which have no profit. You know, and people want to make restrictions and dietary laws and you can't eat this and you can't eat that. And we know that that's all legalism, but, you know, some... Christian groups even embrace things like that. I've heard Christians arguing about, you know, you know they're more spiritual because they don't eat meat. Listen, you can't make laws that, or rules for yourself that are, you know, unbiblical and then act like you're above the Scripture. The Bible doesn't say that. If you want to do that, fine. You know, eat whatever you want. Eat, don't eat meat, eat meat, be a vegetarian, be a vegan. I don't care, live on Twinkies and Ho-Hos, whatever you want to do. It's your, it's your body, right? But we, we can't create our own morality. These people create their own morality. Well, I'm morally superior to you because, you know, I only eat plants. Great for you. So do giraffes. You know, we got to stop with the legalism. People create legalism out of anything. And the Bible tells us, you know, it's not about what you eat. It's not what goes into a man. It's, you know, it's not the outside. It's not what goes into a man. It's what's internal that makes us pleasing to God. It's, what, it's what's internal that defiles us or not. So avoid legalism. Avoid dietary restrictions. Avoid weird, strange doctrines. It's just a grace killer. And, and the author of Hebrews wants us to know to avoid it. Uh, verses 10 through 15 appeal to a very uh, Jewish mindset here in the traditional sense which this is concerned about the sacrificial system and the priests that implemented that sacrificial system under the Mosaic law. Basically, it says we have an altar which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. 
There again, Gentiles would be like, say what? Because this is not a Gentile thing. This is a, this is a Jewish thing as the priesthood under the Levitical law system carried out you know, the ritualistic sacrifice of animals. And so they, they understand about the altar and the, about the sacrifices and the sin offerings and the fact that you know, the blood was sprinkled and the, the meat was burnt and, so, and the carcasses are thrown out of the camp. You know, there again, Hebrews is written mainly to the Jewish mindset. So the, the Jewish person would understand this. This is their traditional uh, understanding of the sacrificial system. Now, basically what 10 and 11 are showing is that the new covenant eclipses all those who ministered, you know, uh, the, the new covenant eclipses the old covenant and all those things that they did and all the ministry they did there is now you know, non-essential for us as believers. We don't have to sacrifice animals anymore. We don't have to sprinkle blood on things. We don't have to be ritualistically cleansed anymore. Someone say amen, because I'm telling you, you wouldn't like it. Every time you sin, you got to show up with an animal. Here he goes again, you know. People knew. People knew what animals were sin offering. Then, you know, you could see the old Jewish ladies washing their dishes in the window. What did he do now? I wonder... Well, this side of the room's having fun. You know, now all we have to do is go to Jesus and say, you know, I did, I blew it. Please forgive me. What a, what a better system. Yet there were some in the, New, in the New Testament church that wanted to go back to the old things. How would we want to go back to that? It's a new and better covenant. The new covenant is eclipsed by the old covenant. The law... The law covenant or the, the, Mosaic, the Mosaic covenant doesn't grandfather people into the new covenant. Understand that. There's only one way into the new covenant. It's through Jesus. And that's what we have to understand. God still loves the Jewish people. They're the apple of his eye. He's going to deal with them when the church age is over. And, and, and the scripture says many wonderful things about how he's going to save all of Israel in the day. And there's just there's great things to come for, for, the, for the Jews because God loves them. But right now, as Gentile believers in Christ, we don't need to implement the Jewish things of the old covenant because they're legalistic and they have no place in the realm of grace, amen? Uh, the bodies of animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest, very Jewish, burnt outside the camp. What is that talking about? Jesus is being compared to the sacrificial lambs that were offered for sin, and under that, you know, the sin offering was brought in and sacrificed, and then what the carcasses were burned outside the camp, kind of equating to the fact that Jesus was taken outside of the city and crucified on Golgotha outside of the city gates, showing him to be the sacrificial lamb for us in the new covenant, amen? So there again, speaking to the Jewish listener in, in, in ways they can understand, showing Christ to be everything they need, all sufficient. They don't need Christ plus the law. They don't need Jesus plus their culture and customs. No, they just need Christ. He's the lamb. He's the lamb of the new covenant. His blood is superior. So verse 12 says he suffered outside the gate. That's talking about Golgotha. Wasn't crucified in the city, outside the city. And that's the reference there that is showing the listener here that Jesus is the lamb and he's the one who solidifies the new covenant verse 13 and 14 commands us to identify with christ why because he goes outside the camp saying we have no continuing city we're we're 
we're outside of the city in the sense that we are in the world, but not of the world. You understand that? That's how we identify with Christ. Well, you know, and we say, no, you know, I'm, I'm American. I live in America. No, we're just kind of squatting here for a while. The Bible calls us sojourners, amen? Now, you can love your country. You can be a good citizen. The Bible tells you to, but listen to me. Don't get so attached to this place that we forget, you know, who we really are and where our home really is. It's really easy to do. Oh, you know, I'm Italian, I'm American, I'm this, I'm that. You know what? I'm born again. I belong to Jesus. I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm just passing through here, and so are you. And this is what we got to get. We don't want to get so entangled in the world that we can't disentangle ourselves from it without being destroyed. Um, We identify with Christ. He didn't have a place to lay his head. He was crucified outside the camp. Uh, you know, we have a heavenly address. Earth is not our home. Verse 15 uh, shows the continual offering that we should bring. You know, there again, the Jewish uh, mindset here about bringing offerings and the daily offerings that the priest offered. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer, there it is, the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So now the continual offering that we bring, it's not burnt grain, it's not poured out wine. It's not the burnt flesh of animals that is offered as a sweet savor. It's not the fat portions that are burnt and offered to God. No, the the sacrifice that we now as born again Christians bring continually is praise to the Lord. Amen. The fruit of our lips giving praise. And that's what, you know, that's what we need to be pouring out of us all day. What what pours out of us all day? I'm, I'm hoping nobody answers complaining, bickering, you know, you know, what pours out of us in traffic? What pours out of us? Uh, don't answer. But, you know, what needs to pour out of us all day is this continued offering that we bring, a sacrifice of praise. We used to sing a song around here, we bring a sacrifice of praise. Remember, anybody remember that? And, you know, it's a good reminder for us that, you know, what needs to be coming out of our mouths is praise to Jesus. No, that's only on Wednesday and Sunday, worship time, and then we stop and we, we let you talk. No, we're supposed to praise the Lord all the time, amen? That's what's supposed to be coming out of our mouths. Now, I know all of us fall short on that because a lot of other stuff comes out of our mouths, but, you know, this is, a, this is a refocusing for us here. That's why, you know, Hebrews is giving us these rapid-fire uh, these rapid-fire moral imperatives here that, you know, we should be reminded of. Verse 16 is really simple but really powerful. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well-pleased. Look at that, do good. It's so easy. Uh, Pastor, I don't know what to do. Do the right thing. 99.9% of the time we know what the right thing is to do. But pastor, the right thing is hard, so I'm hoping that you have another suggestion. No, just do the right thing. Do good, amen. Be kind. Be merciful. Treat others the way you would want to be treated. Do good. And then it says share. This is, this is one that, you know, when we're, when we're children, we are born not wanting to share. Have you ever seen a couple kids in the sandbox? There's always one or two of them that every toy in that box is mine, Right? Mine. Not every kid's like this. Some, some kids do share. It's a, they're anomalies. They're weird. They're like unicorns. It happens once in a while. But, you know, little babies, mine, mine, I do, mine. And, and that's, our, that's our flesh. 
And that's why the scripture is just really simply telling us here, share. If you got extra, if you, if you got something, if you're not, you, share. Be kind and share. Do the right thing and share. If you got one of them spirits that's mine, mine, mine. I know some people, they won't lend you nothing, help you, nothing. They got, you got this? Yeah, I got one of those. Can I? No. I hope Jesus makes him wait outside heaven for the first thousand years. Verse 17 is a reminder to submit and to respect to spiritual authority. So it says here, obey those who rule there again. We're going to talk about that word rule. You know, it's translated rule, but the implications of what that means there is it's, you know, lead you. So it says here, obey those who lead over you and be submissive. That's an important thing. For they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief. for That would be unprofitable for you. So this verse is a powerful one. It's a relevant one. It's a reminder to, to, to submit to and to respect those who are genuinely in positions of leadership in the body of Christ. Now, not, you know, some people are kind of, you know, put themselves in charge. You ever been around people who put themselves in charge? It's amazing to me. I've even, as a pastor leading something, I've, I've seen people just try and cut me off and put themselves in charge. It's just amazing. But, you know, this happens all the time. I'm not talking about leaders who are self-anointed and self-appointed. I'm talking about leadership, God-ordained leadership. And you know who they are. You know, you call them pastor. And so the Bible is saying here, those that serve you as leaders, submit to them and respect them and respect the position of spiritual authority. You know, that word rule there, it means lead. And the Bible teaches that to be a leader in the body of Christ, you have to be a servant leader. Amen? It's servant leadership. That's the model in the New Testament. We are not rulers. We're not kings. We're not Christian celebrities. We're not tyrants that rule over the body of Christ. I've been in the church, and I've been in it a long time, and I've been in a lot of churches, and I've seen pastors that ruled like kings, that ruled like tyrants. I've seen all of these things. You fan him. You carry his bag. You drive his car. Who is this guy? Thank God that that's dying off. This generation doesn't want to serve anybody, so that's a hard sell now. But leaders are not kings. They're not tyrants. They're not rulers. They're servants. I'm your servant. Oh, you're going to love this. I got to serve you. Before God, if you're hurting, if you're broken, if you need me, I got to serve you. I'm going to call them at 2 a.m. I'll serve you. You see, to be a leader, you've got to be a servant leader, amen? So the Bible's saying those who serve you, those who are your leaders, you know, don't give them a hard time. That's basically what it is. You know, they have to give an account. And did you see that in there? They watch for your souls. That's an important thing. You know, they're, they're serving you as servant leaders. Be submissive to them, for they watch for your souls. You know, and that's the thing that, that I want you to get here, that those, you know, many of you have been in lots of different churches. You've had lots of other pastors minister to you in your spiritual growth. You're here today because of what, you know, how they served you, and I get to enjoy all these good people here, right? But understand that, uh, you know, 
Pastors are called to watch for the souls of their flock, and they'll be held to account if they don't. If they want to be served and want to be tyrants and want to act like kings and not care about the, the peasantry that, you know, serves them, and then they have to stand before God and all of these people maybe that were broken and hurting and maybe some of them that went to hell, they got to give an account for that. You know what keeps me up awake at night? Not, not the opinions of people, not the judgments and criticisms of man. What keeps me up at night is having to stand before God and having failed him. That motivates me. I've been doing this a long time. I never come to this pulpit unprepared. I never wing it. I never do it half-cocked. I give 110% to every message. I give my attention wherever it needs to be given. And, and it's not because I'm a great guy or I'm, you know, I want to please you. It's because I fear him. And I know I have to stand before him someday. So uh, what it says here is, uh, you know, they're going to be those that give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief. So don't give your leaders a hard time. There's some people I've seen, you know, and I'm not just talking about this church, but I, like I said, I've been around a lot of places. I've been, you know, I've seen a lot of things. And, you know, some people just want to give leadership a hard time. Always second guessing them, always whispering behind their back, always, you know, when they say something, they want to know why, and, you know, they're arrogant, like, who does he think? You know, it's just crazy. I could share some stuff with you that would just, you know, we could have fun. We could eat donuts, and we could tell stories. It'd be fun. But don't give your leaders a hard time. If God moves you on, and you move, and you go to another church, honor your pastor, serve your pastor, you know, don't give them grief. Why? Because it says it would be unprofitable for you. You know, pastors are people too. And when you give them a hard time, they give you a hard time back. Sometimes my wife sees how I treat people who are disrespectful and pushy and nasty. And she's like, wow, I can't believe you're so gracious. She says, I wish you were that way with me. No, she didn't. But like sometimes you've seen, yeah, and it's the Lord because it's not me. <laughs> I tell you later on when I figured out what happened, I was like, how did, how did that happen? So there's grace, and we need to honor each other and love each other, and I'm watching for your soul, so you watch for me and you pray for me. And, you know, just really such a beautiful thing when the body of Christ works together in harmony. And thank God here we don't, we don't have much of this pushback and division, but honestly there is some, and uh, I pray that, you know, that God would dry up all of it because it's better for all of us. The chapter ends and the book ends with a prayer request in verses 18 and 19, a benediction and a farewell. Uh, Sister Kim, could you come and bring the mic and just read these last verses here? They're right in my notes. You've heard me enough. Now you'll hear her lovely reading voice. This ends the book. Verse 18, pray for us, for we are confident that we have good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Verse 20, now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in few words. 
Know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. Amen. Let's give God a hand clap of praise for the book of Hebrews. Praise God. Amen.